A few weeks ago, I boarded a plane to the United States to bring this system, this educational program, to the U.S., to the Secretary of Jews in America, so they could take a look at it. We had invitations from ABC, from CBS, all the different networks to come and speak about it. Everyone was very excited. I was thrilled because it had already been several years I'd been looking into the system, and I know that there's something very powerful here. So when I got on the plane, I was very excited. As I was doing the research for the, for the book, one of the tasks in front of me was to compare the Chazals to what modern research says today. to See how close modern research came to getting it right. And you don't find a correspondence, you find an absolute and perfect match. So the research was very, very exciting for me. And as the research was pouring in, it piled up on my desk. And the research has been coming in week after week after week for the last couple of years. And as I was getting on the plane to go to America, uh, I still had a last stack of stuff that I hadn't gone through in the week before I left. So I grabbed the last stack and I stuck it in my briefcase. My wife said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm taking the, the research on the plane. Maybe there's something new that I can share when I get to America. So on the plane, first two, three hours on the plane, I'm sitting on the plane, I'm working. And the guy sitting next to me keeps looking over his shoulder, looking at what I'm doing. And after a couple of hours, he says to me, uh, you, you work with kids? So I said, yeah, I just wrote a book. I'm taking it to America. <laughs> ABC, CBS. <laughs> so he says, you wrote a book about working with kids? He says, you have any kids? So I said, yeah, I got five. <laughs> There's my credentials, yeah? So the guy gets all cloudy-eyed. And he turns towards the window. And he starts to talk. Now, I have no idea if he was talking to me or not. But looking at the window, the guy starts to say, man, I'd give anything to have five kids. So I turned to him. I said, sir, you don't have any kids? He turns back and says, no, I've got eight. <laughs> the moral of the story is that we are confronting in raising kids the single greatest challenge most of us will ever face in our lives. And we need a powerful tool in order to handle this challenge. And thank God, the Bore Olam dropped just such a tool right into our laps. The Chinuch system of the Torah is so sophisticated and so complex and so far ahead of its time that there is no reason why we should be suffering with Chinuch problems. So the goal can't be that in four and a half sessions we're going to give over the entire system. But our goal is that in the next four and a half sessions, the last session will be for wives, last, the next four and a half sessions, what we hope to do is to give you enough more mkomos and enough yesodi ideas so that on your own you'll be able to go and then discover the rest of the system and put it into practice and use it. Yes? Okay. By way of introduction, point number one. It's important to distinguish modern psychology from what we're going to be learning. Indeed, as we progress into the system, I think you'll be shocked 
how influenced even we are by modern psychological premises. And one of the things we're going to have to do is let go of some of those premises. Every school of modern psychology is a self-contained culture. They have their own perspective on what constitutes normal, and they have their own therapies for bringing a human being to that state of normal. So the Torah has a completely unique definition of what normal is, very different from the behaviorists, very different from the Freudians, very different from the, the, uh, the cognitive therapists. We have our own perspective on what kind of human being we're trying to produce. And therefore, the quote-unquote therapy the Torah prescribes is going to be very, very different from the therapies of other systems. There is almost no crossover whatsoever, although some of what the Torah prescribes looks similar, and if we have more background in psychology than in Torah, we have a tendency to take Torah concepts and try to stick them into psychological holes, which is an inappropriate thing to do. So one of the things we have to be very careful in is defining how the system differs from modern psychological systems. Point number two. One way in which the Torah system differs drastically with modern psychological systems is that modern psychological systems are oriented around technique. If you go and buy uh, the best of the How to Raise Your Kid books in the secular world, they're, the first volume is five to 700 pages. And they usually come in three or four volume sets, right? Ages you know, one to four, ages four to eight, ages eight to 15, yes. And each one of these things is going to be 700 pages of tricks. A classical Jewish parenting guide maybe would be 30 or 40 pages. And to the extent that it goes over the 30 or 40 pages, in some ways it's already starting to compromise and put in some sort of a secular approach. Because there aren't more than 30 to 40 pages of klalim. And like the Ramchal says in the beginning of the Der Hashem, the whole goal in Limutore is to be toe-faced the klal, to understand the general principle. So our goal here is to understand general principles. And therefore, sometimes it's very frustrating, when you're learning the Torah system of Chinuch, there will be very few concrete illustrations. Initially, that drives people crazy. Because we're so used to having concrete illustrations because we're, we've been trained in the secular system. Everything is a trick, a technique. Here's how you ha solve this problem. Here's how you work out bedtime. Here's how you do... Each thing you have... So we'll be very frustrated when the Torah gives over klal after klal after klal. Now because many of us have background in the secular world, so I'm going to give many more concrete examples than are probably necessary. Yeah? If we were giving over a pure Torah class, we would just go over the klalim and you would work it out on your own. But just to get you started to prime the pump, we'll try to give concrete examples here too as well, but not as many as you might expect in a parenting class. We're certainly not going to give a litany of parenting challenges and then prescribe exactly how to solve each one of those challenges. Rather, the goal is to achieve the claw. Now, there are two reasons why, doctrinary parenting, the goal is to go after the claw, not after prating. Reason number one. We believe that HaKadosh Baruch Hu created the world and there is a single Yisod that underlies the entire world and that is Hashem Echad. From that single Yisod, that single Klal, there are Klalim that stem off of that, branch Klalim. We believe that anyone who is in possession of the Klalim, that is the total picture of what the universe should look like, in theory that person should be able to take these klalim and apply it to every single situation and solve any parenting challenge they run into. Therefore, there should be no need 
for describing how to solve each individual parenting challenge. The, the promise of the course, and hopefully we'll fulfill this, is that within three, four weeks, people will be able to throw challenges at your feet, parenting challenges, and you'll be able to say, okay, here we go with the clawing. Okay, let's see, there's three essential principles. Apply one, two, three, there. This should be the solution. And you should be on your, on your own able to prescribe the solution for most parenting challenges. So reason number one is the universe is a single claw. If you grasp the claw, you'll be able to explain all of the prati. Reason number two, and this is a fundamental difference again between secular, Jewish, secular parenting and Jewish parenting. We believe that a parent is a certain tzura of a human being. And someone who is masig that tzura, someone, I don't mean comprehends, someone who achieves the tzura of parent will naturally know how to handle most parenting challenges. So the real challenge of parenting then becomes transforming oneself into a parent. Transforming oneself into the sort of being that will naturally relate to children properly. Once you've made that transformation, then you don't need a whole list of to-dos, of handy tricks. And someone who hasn't undergone the transformation to become a parent won't be able to parent properly even if they had a whole list of handy to-dos. So therefore, again, our goal is to avoid pratim, our goal is to go after the klal. Now, I realize already people are probably uncomfortable. That's not what you came here for, yes? But this is the solution. The pratim will never get you to where you want to be. Point number three. Still by way of introduction. There are limits even to what the perfect parenting system can achieve. And there are limits for two reasons. Reason number one is that sof-sof, our kids have free will. So you can be using an absolutely perfect parenting system and you can be the perfect parent and your kids can still come out highly imperfect. Okay, that's bad news, but that's olam haza. That's just the way things are constructed. So you can't expect even the most perfect parenting system to produce perfect results every single time. It doesn't work that way because a kid can do whatever he wants. The second reason that there are limits on even the most perfect parenting system is because in the final analysis, all we're doing is hishtadlis. But of course, Baruch determines whether or not the kid comes out okay or not. It's entirely in his hands. It's not even 1% in my hands. Why do I do hishtadlis? Because I'm a fromiyid. I, I don't keep kosher to avoid trichinosis. I don't keep Shabbos to avoid heart attacks. I don't put on tefillin to keep my blood pressure low. And I don't engage in proper parenting in order to get good kids. That's not the way that it works. Yeah? The hishtadlis never has anything to do with the result. It's always a Kodesh Baruch So therefore, you can do absolutely perfect hishtadlis and get nothing. Because so so a Kodesh Baruch is in charge. So, again, just to make our approach a purely Jewish approach. Let us realize that this is not like a slot machine where you drop in a quarter, right, and pull the crank and get out a perfect kid. It's not going to work that way. All we're coming together to do is to learn what we should be doing as parents.
But in the final analysis, what happens with our kids is up to a Kodesh Baruch Hu and the kid. Okay. With that, we're ready to begin. Perhaps the first place to start is with the definition of the word chinuch, which is very, very, very different from secular education. If you look in Parshish Lech Lecha, so Bereshish Yud Dalad Yud Dalad, 1414, there's a story there about how Lot, Avram's nephew, gets captured, is dragged off, kidnapped, and Avraham prepares to go and rescue Lot. And as Avram is preparing, the Pesach says, Vayarek eschanichav. Avraham girded up his chanichav. Now, you could grossly translate that as he girded up his educated ones, his chinuched ones. So on the spot, Rashi says, what is a chinuched one? What is this thing chinuch? And Rashi says, what is chinuch? Chinuch is lashon. Knisat ha'adam o ha'kli l'umnus shu atid la'modba. It is the bringing in of the, the person or the tool, into the profession which in the future it is going to perform. So, Rashi then gives three illustrations of this. One illustration is, he says, Chanuch l'nar al pidarko. There's a post that says that we should chanuch kids. So that's what we're going to be speaking about in the course generally. He gives two other examples. He says, so too the word chanukat mizbeach and chanukat abayit. In both cases, you see the word chinuch used. That's very, very difficult to say that Chanukat Mizbeach is the education of the Mizbeach, or Chanukat Bait is the education of the Bait. So you see right away that chinuch is not translated well if you translate it as education. It's something else. What exactly is this thing, chinuch? So take Rashi's definition and play it out, let's say, in uh, a Chanukat Bait. Yes? What do you do at a Chanukat Bait? At a Chanukat Bait, most that I've been to, what they do is, they serve food, and they say Divri Torah. Okay, now, why is this a Chanukah bite? So I think I'm a core for why this might be called a Chanukah bite. is if you look in Avos, right, in the first parak, there's a machlokus there between the two Rabbi Yossi's about exactly what is a bite. So, according to one Yossi, yes, what is a bite? So he says, Yossi ben Yerji, stray domeri, he beischa beizvad l'chachamim. Your house should be a meeting place for sages. Sit at the dust of their feet, drink in their words. Abide is a place of hachma. It's a place where people come and they learn Torah. The other Yossi says, no, that's not what abide is. What's abide? He says, Let your house be wide open. And let poor people come and sit in your house. A place of chesed, a place where you'll take care of people. Physically. So you see here, there's two definitions of bite. Elu ve'elu diver likim chaim. What is a house? It's a place of Torah and a place of chesed. So Pasha, what is a Chanukah to bite? 
It's knisat ha'adam or kli I'm taking my house and I'm starting to use it for what it's going to be used for forever. It is the launching of the house, not the chinuch of the house, the launching of the house. So you see, the definition of chinuch is when you launch whatever this thing or person is doing what it's going to do forever. Chanukat mizbeach, exact same thing. The Chanukat mizbeach is when you take the mizbeach and you start using it as mizbeach. Bidiuk, the exact same thing. What is going to be chinuch? Chinuch is not going to be shoveling facts into a child's head. Unless your goal in life is that this child, for the rest of his life, sit and passively memorize facts. If that's what the, the umnus shatila modbo, if that's what you want him to do for the rest of his life, then that's called chinuch. But if that's not what you want him to do, then that's not called chinuch. Whatever you want him to do, that's going to be chinuch. You want the kid to love learning? That's the goal? Then the chinuch will be you have to create a matzav where the kid is loving learning. That's then called chinuch. It's knis sadmo klila umnashatila modpa. So right away we see the definition of chinuch is not going to be education, it's something else. Go a step further. We don't know much about a Kodesh Borahu. In fact, we know almost nothing. The little bit that we know. He revealed to us so that we would copy him. The eighth mitzvah of the 613, the should imitate a Kodesh Baruch Hu. Mahu rachum, rachum. So, a Kodesh Baruch Hu illustrates whatever behaviors he illustrates for us so that we will recognize them and copy them. A Kodesh Baruch Hu illustrates for us three crucial behaviors which turn out to be the three pillars of the Jewish educational system. Now, this is the hump. If you get over this, you've got the whole system and everything else will slide into place. So it's this next ten minutes which is the most crucial of the entire four weeks, four and a half weeks. Here are the three pillars. Behavior number one that a Kodesh Baruch Hu illustrates we say in Shimon Esrei that a Kodesh Baruch Hu is the Matzmiach Karen Yeshua. He is one who causes to sprout the horn of salvation. A perfect world is going to sprout forth. What does it mean that it will sprout? So organic processes are very slow. You go out, you take a look at a flower. Memorize what it looks like. Leave, come back in 10 minutes and go back and take another look at it. Now you know it's alive. If it wasn't alive, it would be laying over dead. But you go back and it looks the exact same. So you go back an hour later, it looks the exact same. You go back a day later, it probably looks almost identical. After a week, you see microscopic change. The nature of organic processes is they happen almost invisibly slowly. HaKodesh Baruch Hu almost invisibly, moves the world towards perfection. He does it with such a light touch that people don't realize as he's pushing the world towards perfection. When Kleisrael went out of the Gullahs the first time into Bavel, so they thought they were there for good. That was, it was over. Like, how are they ever going to get back? Near Lion, there was no way back. And then some crazy story. 
Right? The king doesn't like his wife and he kills her and runs a beauty contest. And, right, one thing leads to another. Before you know it, the Jews are being sent back to Eretz Yisrael. And it seemed like it unfolded so naturally and no one could have predicted it was going to happen until it happened. A Kodesh Baruch does this constantly. I'll give you another example. When I was in America on this last trip, I saw something astounding. <clears throat> the country in the last 20 years has become gradually more and more vehemently secular. And the words on the dollar bill in God we trust have slowly, slowly switched their intention from, at one point, probably they were speaking about a Kodesh Baruch Hu many, many, many years ago. But in recent years, we all know when it says in God we trust, they meant they trust the dollar bill. That was their God. When I went to America recently, I saw something astounding. I saw hanging from the bridges in New York, I happened to have been there in, in October, hanging from the bridges in New York, signs that say, pray to God. I went down to ground zero. It's mile after mile after mile of church. People with roses, with crosses, prayers plastered up around walls. The whole country became religious. What happened? The President of the United States got on television and said, quote, utter a prayer. He told them to daven. What's going on in this country? So, of course, I remember on September 11th, exactly where I was sitting. It was a Tuesday. I remember I was teaching a class. We walked out of the class and someone said they just flew a couple of planes into the World Trade Center. And I remember we couldn't believe it. And the world was in shock. Shock! For about 24 hours. No, out of the blue, no one knew where this came from. Then, 24 hours later, the political pundits had recovered and they were on the radio and the television saying, well, of course, it was predictable all along. We knew this was coming because, I mean, after all, I mean, you know, he's been training terrorists in, in Afghanistan for the last, you know, 20 years and they sent, sent forward to America. Blah, 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 blah. We knew this was coming. All right. <laughs> no one knew this was coming. It was out of the blue. But in retrospect, we see it was growing all along. Akkodesh Baruch was slowly, slowly, slowly moving things, moving the world towards perfection, getting it to exactly where it needed to be. I remember I was in the Soviet Union in 1985 and it was bad. It was very bad. I was arrested by the KGB. They beat up me. They beat up my wife. Then I remember four years later, one night in 1989, I went to sleep. I remember that night when I went to sleep, there was a Soviet Union. And I remember I woke up the next morning and there wasn't. We're in shock. And within 48 hours, the political pundits were on the radio saying, of course, this was predictable all along. We knew this was coming. No one knew this was coming. Of course, Baruch quietly in the background moves the world towards Geula. And no one knows what's happening until it's already over. Matzmiach, Karen Yeshua, Baruch causes salvation to sprout like a flower growing out of the ground. You can't see the movement as it's happening, but we're moving. Akkodesh Baruch has another name besides being called Matzmiach. Akkodesh Baruch is also called the Bona Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim is the paradigm of a perfect world. And we understand that Akkodesh Baruch builds the world into a perfect place. What does that mean? Every now and then, he rips open history, descends in front of all the people, splits the Red Sea, does ten plagues, talks to the Jews at Mount Sinai, 
Complete hashkacha practice in front of everybody. Every now and then, God interferes visibly. When he sticks a brick into history, that's called binyan. It's clear, it's obvious, and suddenly history takes a sharp right turn. Open miracles. So God plants, God builds, and God engages in one third behavior, which will be important for us in terms of chinuch, and that is God prays. Gemara and brachas, my matzli, what does Kodesh Baruch pray? May my midas arachimim overwhelm my midas adin. Kodesh Baruch davens. We possess a system for giving kids the maximum head start. And the system only has three components. It's very simple. There are three clawing. There's planting, there's building, and there's prayer. Now, if you know how that works, you don't need to come back for any of the future classes. That's it. There's planting, building, and prayer. There are no more chidushim beyond that. That's all we've got. Exactly how planting, building, and prayer works, how to apply it, etc., that's what we'll be speaking about. But all we're going to learn how to do in the next few weeks is plant, build, and pray. Zehu. And with this, you can give your kids maximum head start. No guarantees the kids will come out great, but maximum head start. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about planting, building, and prayer. Give some concrete illustrations. And that'll pretty much bring us to the end of the evening. Here we go. What does planting look like? Dig a hole in the ground, take a seed, drop a seed in. <laughs> Cover it up with dirt. Wait. I forgot the water. Wait. A long time. Indeed, if someone's going to be a planter, they got to have a lot of faith. The first thing that happens in the ground, the seed rots! It rots! It smells! It stinks! It comes apart! And then, a few days later, out of no place, ding, a little green sprout comes up through the ground. Those people who are planters must be men of faith. Hence, Seder Zroim has another name. It's also called Seder Amona. Anyone who's going to be involved in planting must be faithful. You've got to stand there and wait. And this is one of the reasons why people are so opposed to getting involved in true Jewish parenting. is because you have to be a person of tremendous faith. As you plant the seeds, you will not see immediate results. And you just plant and you pour that water and you wait and you daven. And there's a law built into the universe. The law is, if you plant, you will get fruit. Interesting, in the Kaddish we say uh, a line, Be'alma divra chirusei. That Lashon, Be'alma divra chirusei, the world was created according to his will, it appears one other place in the Sidur. It also appears about a human being. The world was created according to God's will, and Shasani Kirtsono, a human being is also created according to God's will. Turns out only women say the bracha because by women there's a physical component and a spiritual component that is similar to the earth. So they say the bracha, but it's true about all human beings, at least in the spiritual realm. In what way? All earth gives fruit. In Gush Katif, they grow cucumbers and tomatoes in sand. All earth on this planet gives fruit. That's a guarantee from a Kodesh Baruch Hu. You plant, you'll get fruit. Now, please don't misunderstand. Planting, building, and prayer are not a metaphor. It's not, we do something very similar to planting. We do something very similar to building. No! 
Woven into the fabric of the universe, there are certain processes which God created. There are organic processes planting. There are inorganic processes building. There is prayer. These processes function the exact same way whether you're talking about a rose bush or a little boy. It's the exact same forces at work. And therefore, just as if you plant in sand and you take proper care of the sand, you will get cucumbers and tomatoes in the exact same way. If you plant in a human being and you take good care of the human being, you will get fruit. You will get the tzaddik. Assuming the child opts to use his free will and of course Baruch has rachamim and gives hashkoch. What does planting look like? During the the Bain is Manning, so we try to take our kids out of Yerushalayim. They should see that there's other parts of Eretz Yisrael. It's a very, very beautiful country. I've lived in many, many countries. This is the most beautiful country I've ever seen in my life. And I want my kids to know that, so I take them out so they can see the country. A few years ago, I decided to take a day trip during the Bain is Manning to Netanya. It was Cholomoyed Sukkot, and we have five little kids. I had made the decision that we should go to the Tanya. My wife is responsible for actually pulling the trip off because she's got to take care of the five little kids, make sure they get there okay. So I'm ready to go. She says, wait, before we go, each kid has to go to the restroom. Fine, okay, she knows what she's doing. She takes each one of the five kids to the restroom. All five kids use the restroom. My wife says, quick. Here we go. Should I flip? Before they change their mind, let's go! So we head off with all of our kids. Get on the number 15 bus, go to the central bus station. Before we had our first child, my wife and I became aware of a Litvishiminig that when we name a child, we should think carefully before we name the child because names are significant, they influence the child's character. And once we name the child, then we call the child by that name. There's a minute that you don't use nicknames. There's various halachic reasons why such a thing is a beautiful thing to do. It's a very, very difficult minute to keep. My wife and I spoke about it before we had our first child, and we decided that we're going to be macabre ourselves upon ourselves this minute. So we were macabre upon ourselves this minute, and with each one of our five children, once we gave, we thought carefully before we gave the name, once we gave the name, we only called the child by that name for at least five minutes after the child was born. <laughs> My middle child, his name is Hillel Ishayahu, which is not the best name if you always want to call him by that name. When we arrived at the central bus station, I went to buy the tickets for Netanya. My wife wisely advised me, buy the express tickets, because you can't put a five little kids on a bus that's going to stop ten times on the way to Netanya, two and a half hour ride, they're never going to make it. So I bought the express tickets, a straight shot, it goes right from Yerushalayim straight to Netanya, right? 45 minutes, an hour ride. I get in line, I'm buying the tickets. My wife takes the kids one more time to the restroom just to make sure. She takes them in there. She's shaking them, squeezing them. Yeah, no chance of any mistakes on the bus. Fine. She brings the kids out of the restroom, right? I finish with the tickets. I'm coming right out. She's right there. I say, let's go. We head right over to the bus. The Tanya bus is pulling away. I flag the guy down. He stops. He opens the door. My wife and I and the kids, we pile on. We're getting on the bus. The bus is pulling away. Right? We're all getting seated. Right? I sit down next to Hillel. Yeshayahu. Yes, we're sitting together. Right? And the bus takes off. 
we're ready for a beautiful day in Netanya. It's going to be terrific. Fifteen minutes into the ride, Hillel, who's sitting next to me, turns to me and says, Abba? I said, yeah, what's wrong, Hillel? I have to go to the bathroom. I said, Hillel, that's impossible. You went when you were at home. You went again when you were at the central bus station. Didn't have to go then. I have to go now. I said, Hillel, like, we're on a bus. It's not going to stop. I said, but don't worry. You'll be okay. We'll be there soon. 45 minutes, we'll be there. Okay. 15 minutes later. So I said, okay, hello, just a minute. I realized, you know, I said to him, it's all going to be okay, but even I didn't believe it at that point, yes? So I got up and I walked up to the driver and I said to the driver, you know, you know these egg drivers, you know, they're used to having kids around. Everybody has kids. They know, they know about these sorts of problems. And I was just driving along. I said to him, you know, listen, excuse me, sir, but, you know, we've got to stop the bus because i got a kid here who's got to go to the bathroom. He says to me, sorry, this is the direct bus. It doesn't stop. So I said, and I said, you don't understand. I said, i got a kid back here. You see, he's got a kid who's turning blue over there. He's going to pop. Yeah? you got to, you got to pull over. Guy says to me, you know, I'm sorry, sir, but you know, this is the direct bus inside. He says, it's going to take a minute. Sorry, we don't stop. So I talked to the guy for five minutes. I realized we're getting no place. By the time I got back to my chair, Hillel had assumed the posture of a pretzel. Yes? He was in bad shape. Yeah, he was making noises. Ooh, yes, everyone on the bus was worried. They all knew what was going on. Yeah? My wife was sitting next to him. Hillel, hold on. The bus is screaming. Hillel, hold on. Yes? Right? So, you know, Hillel's breathing slowly, uh, and all right, the bus comes up the hill to Natanya. I'm like, Hillel, hold on, we're almost there. The bus pulls into the central bus station in Natanya. I said, Hillel, as soon as we pull in, there's a restroom right there. We're going to hop off, go right into the restroom, you're going to be fine. The bus stops, right? The door opens. My other four kids hop up and block the aisles. Yes, my wife and I grab Hillel by the arm and start carrying him out. Yes, we walk him over to, to, the, to the restroom there, and there's a big wooden sign that says, under construction. <laughs> Hillel says, Abba! I said, hello, don't worry, we're going to go right out here on the boardwalk, one of these stores is going to have a restroom, right? My four kids caught the clue, they go running out onto the boardwalk, my kids are running in and out of each store along the way looking for the restroom, yes? My wife and I are carrying Hillo down the boardwalk, yes? Hillo is in excruciating pain. My kids disappear around the corner, none of these stores had a restroom, yes? They come running around the corner a minute later, my oldest son is in the lead, right? And as he's running towards us, he's, he's screaming, we found a restroom, we found a restroom! So I said, where is it? So by this time, my, my, my children have reached me, right? My, my oldest son says to me, it's in a, it's in a McDonald's. So, so, no, not McDonald's, sorry. It's in a bar. So I said, I said, I, 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 so Hillel looks up to me and he says, what's a bar? So my oldest son says to him, it's a place where people uh, listen to loud music and get drunk. So Hillel looks up at me and he says, I can't go in a bar. So I said to him, why not? <laughs> so... When Hillel was born, from the moment that he was born, maybe five minutes later, my wife looked at this little baby and she said, what a little Kadosh. And that was the name that stuck. And whenever she wanted to call him by an affectionate name, she called him my little Kadosh. And until today, she calls Hillel her little Kadosh. It was an affectionate nickname. Hillel looks up at me and he says, I can't go in a bar because I'm Kadosh. I had never told my kids not to go into a bar. It never came up. <laughs> yeah. But I never needed to. Because we had planted a perspective in a child. Accidentally, we had no idea what we were doing. This kid, from the time he was a little baby, was told he was a Kadosh. And that seed took root and eventually sprouted and took over his whole personality. And by the time... Right, that Hillel was the time, like five years old, 
Hill had this image of himself as a kadosh. He came to understand what kadosh means, and he knew he couldn't go into a bar. That was clear to him. That is classic planting. What is the definition of planting by a human being? Here's the formal definition. You're going to need this for the next few weeks. The formal definition of planting is when you insert into a child values and perspectives. A value is what's important in life. A perspective is the way that the world should look to the child. This child, when he looked in the mirror, he looked out. He saw a kadosh creature. He thinks he's Selim Elohim. That's what his, that's what his perspective is on life. He thinks he's Selim Elohim. That is classic planting. Now, of course, the first time you call a child Kadosh, you see no results whatsoever. And the second time, and the third time, and the fourth time. And if you are a results-oriented, fast-food sort of person, you'll never have the patience to keep planting Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. But if you understand that a Kodesh who promised, if you plant, you will get fruit, then you'll have the Koach of the Muna to continually plant the messages that you want your ch- children to internalize. Building looks very different. What does building look like? So imagine I've got here a perfect wall. You know, this is beautiful. The bricks, everyone is perfectly s- straight except for that one. It's a huge hole there. Uh, I'll be right back. I'm just going to... I just want to fix up this hole. This is really bad. Instantaneously, in front of your eyes, the repair was made. The nature of building is that at the moment when you make the tikkun, the thing is metukan. What is the formal definition of building? Building is when you insert into a child bricks which are habits or behaviors. Planting is perspectives and values. Bricks are habits and behaviors. You say to Johnny, Johnny, don't brush your teeth like this. Brush your teeth like this. And you watch, and suddenly the kid's brushing his teeth like this. Say, Johnny, before you eat bread, wash your hands like this. And Johnny says, okay, picks up, okay, goes. A brick, a behavioral brick. Building, by the way, is seductive. Because we get instantaneous results. Or so it seems. At least superficially, it looks as if I've changed the child. So people are very, very, very attracted to building. When I put a brick in, I feel like, all right, I, I look at it, I was a tremendous mechanic, my kids changed. The reality, though, is if I only build, if I just give the kid dry instructions with no values and no perspectives, no explanation of why this particular behavior is so important. If I only build, what I end up with is, at best, a robot. The kid might do what he's told. However, he'll never have a vision of what the world is supposed to look like. He'll never have a dream, a picture. And therefore, there'll be no yuzma. There'll be no ingenuity, no, no excitement, no vision, no attempt to perfect the world because he has no idea of what the world is supposed to look like. He just follows instructions. What's the classic kid who's been built to death? 
He comes from school, drops his backpack on the ground. Uh, uh, Shmulek, uh, could you please put your backpack someplace else? Sure, Mom, where would you like it? Well, it, you know, we always put it in the corner there in your room. Okay, Mom. Picks up the backpack, puts it in the corner of the room, flops on the couch. Uh, Shmulek, did you do your homework? No, Mom, you want me to do my homework? Well, yes, yeah, Shmulek, of course I want you to do your homework. Okay, Mom, I'll do my homework. Gets up, does his homework, flops back on the couch. Uh, Shmulek, did you take out the trash today? No, Mom, you want me to take out the trash? Of course I want you to take out the trash. Why don't you take out the trash? Mom, why are you getting angry at me? Well, Shmulek, take out the Okay, I'll take out the trash. This is a classic example of a kid who's been built to death. He has no picture inside of what the world's supposed to look like. Why should he take out the trash? Why? No one ever told him why. There's been no planting. No perspectives, no values. Value-free education produces at best a robot. Sometimes it produces worse. There's always a danger when we involve ourselves in absolutely value-free building, just telling our kids, do this, now do this, now do this. There's always the danger that the kid will say, no, I don't see any value in it. I had a kid who just refused to learn his multiplication tables. Right? We knew the test was coming. He didn't want to prepare for the test. Try, try, try. Didn't prepare for the test. Failed the test. Rebbe sent a note home. Kid doesn't know his multiplication tables. Teaches multiplication. So we started teaching his multiplication. He doesn't want to. So I realized we had a problem. So on Shabbos Day, we learn with the kids. Every Shabbos Day, for a few minutes, 10, 15 minutes at the table, we learn with them some Indian. And it just so happens that we were learning the, the Indian of, of Geneva. So we were learning Hilchus Ganev in the, in the Shulchan Aruch. So I was just taking them through Mechaber and Ramah, just so they could get the basic laws down. And this is a lot of fun for kids. And every, I, would, I would teach them five, ten minutes of laws. And then I would give them a, a Bechina. I would say to them, you know, okay, okay, now, the following happens, right? Now, Rebbe, Rebbe, Paskin the Shaila. And I would have them Paskin for me what's Ganev and what's not Ganev. And it was fun for them. We saw this kid didn't want to learn his multiplication tables. And it was clear that we had built, but we had not planted. So after several weeks of teaching Hilchus Ganeva, one week, we were actually in Siam learning Hilchus Ganeva, and I gave one final test to each one of the kids. When I came to that kid, I gave him this test question. You go, I'm sorry, you have a store. And a guy comes into your store, and he wants to buy three popsicles. And each popsicle is a shekel 70. And he hands you a 10 shekel coin. How much change do you give him? My kid turned white. He wanted to keep Hilchus Geneva. The whole family was really into Hilchus Geneva. He was excited. Hilchus Geneva is from a Kodesh Baruch It's like Hilchus Shabbos. Hilchus Kashras. It's really exciting. It's in we saw it. He has a good reason because he's a firm kid. He has a good reason for wanting to keep Shulchan Aruch. And he realized he can't keep Shulchan Aruch unless he knows how to multiply. That night, he asked us, could we work on the multiplication tables again? He was ready. We planted. That is classic planting. Again, to give a value, a perspective, to put things into perspective, to understand how it fits into the larger picture. If you only build, at best you get a robot, sometimes you get a kid who just won't do. What happens if you only plant? This is less common today, although it was extremely common in the late 1960s in the United States, and unfortunately there's some carryover from that today, where you teach your kids beautiful values, beautiful perspectives, give them a heroic vision of the world, but don't impose upon them any particular behaviors. And what you end up with is, at best, a wild animal. A paradigm. The kid has a vision, but he'll never accomplish it because he's not disciplined enough to accomplish it. So therefore, there not only has to be a planting, there also has to be a building. This is the time you get up. There's a bedtime. This is when you're supposed to brush your teeth. This is when you wash. 
This is when you put on tefillin. This is when you daven. This is how you daven. Halacha. Structure. Because I'll compare a Jew to a grapevine. So I wanted to know what this meant. So I went out and bought a grapevine. We named him Harold. We put him on our porch. Harold started to sprout. We live on the third floor. Harold went off the porch, over three floors, off the porch, started going out to nowhere land, spun around, came back, headed right back for the bars that I put around my porch, hit the first bar, sprouted a tentacle, wrapped a tentacle, turned 90 degrees, went right for the next bar, sprouted a tentacle, wrapped another tentacle there. In and out of the bars, all the way across my porch, hit the end of the porch, went up, went all the way through the bars, all the way across again. Filled these bars with Harold. And then, four years later, I sat down on that porch at sukkah's time, under the sukkah, and I made kiddush on Harold. What would have happened if I wouldn't have built? What would have happened if there would have been no bars, no structure to hold Harold up? If there's no structure to hold Harold up, he would have died on the spot. He would have withered. A grapevine can't grow without structure holding it up. What would happen if I had plenty of bars but no grapevine? You get no fruit. The gula always comes through the organic process. That's always the source of the gula. Whenever you see Chazal speaking about gula, it's always in organic terms. Mashiach has a nickname in Zechariah. Mashiach's called Tzemach, Sprout. That's his nickname. So what do you see? The ultimate source of the gula is going to be the planting of the values, the giving of a perspective, a vision. That's what creates a hero, a great Jew. But if you don't impose structure upon the child, then you're going to get a kid who will never fill these visions. That's planting, that's building. We'll go one last step and then we'll stop for tonight. The last step is this. There's planting, there's building, and there's prayer. There's a strange halacha in the Torah. If a person kills accidentally, so he is sent to one of the Ari Miklat and he stays there for a specified jail term. The length of the jail term is until the Kohen Gadol dies. This is a bizarre jail term. It should be like manslaughter gets five years. Bemazin gets ten years. Yeah? What, what is this business? He stays there until the coin goes dies. That could be two days. It could be 20 years. It could be his whole life. So, we understand the reason he stays there until the coin guttle dies is because it was a punishment for the coin guttle. This guy's family, what are they all davening for? For the coin guttle will drop. They all, because they want, the, they want their, they got, and never the poor coin guttle. You have the, 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 the mothers of the, of, of the coin, the, the mother of the coin guttle used to bring food and gifts to the people in the Ari Miklat so they would like the coin guttle so they wouldn't daven for him to die. Yeah? It's a major problem. So why, why is the coin guttle being punished? Because some other guy committed manslaughter that all these people should be praying for his death? So the answer is because if the coin guttle would have done his job, if the coin guttle would have davened for his door, the manslaughter never would have happened. And since he didn't daven properly, therefore, as a kanas to him, other people will be davening for him to die. 
What's strange is, where do you see that the Kohen Gadol has to daven for his door? There's no such halacha. It doesn't appear in the Rambam. On the special tefillahs of the Kohen Gadol and Yom Kippur, there's no mention of a tefillah that the Kohen Gadol has to pray for his door. He shouldn't commit manslaughter. There's no such thing. Where do you see the Kohen Gadol is supposed to be davening for his door? The teretz is, Svarhi Lamalikra. I don't need to be told that he's supposed to daven for his door. Why? Because the Kohen Gadol is achrai on his door. He's responsible for the whole generation. Since he's responsible for them, of course he has to pray for them. And the exact same Sfor lens that a Rav has to daven for his community and a Rebbe has to daven for his Talmidim and a parent, Pashit, has to daven for his kids. Svarhi, it's Pashit, it's logical. If you're Achrei for somebody, you have to minimally daven for them because after all, HaKadosh Baruch Hu ultimately is in charge. We have no control of results whatsoever. So Pashit, we've got to daven. What do we daven? There is no set prayer. It's a very strange thing. In Shemona Esrei, you see, there's a tfi- an explicit tefillah for every essential need of Kala Yisrael. Now, if you walk up to any Yid and you ask them, tell me something. What is the most important thing in the world to you? What do you dream of? Any normal Jew will say Yiddish Nachas. And when they say Yiddish Nachas, we all know what they mean. What's Nachas? Kaval the kids! That's what it's all about. And it's one of the only things you'll find that is of such priority with no explicit prayer anywhere in Shemona Esrei. Why? Because there isn't supposed to be one specific prayer. How do you daven for your kids? You daven for whatever they need when they need it. Listen, it's, um, it's 8 o'clock. Could you please get my kids safely to school this morning? It's, um, it's 1 o'clock. The little ones are coming home. Could you help them get home without, God forbid, anything bad happening? My 12-year-old daughter, she... She really needs a friend. Chris Barkle, my little one, he needs to memorize his multiplication tables. Yesterday! <laughs> you daven for your kids ten times a day. Whatever they need, whenever they need, out loud, help. The nature of a yid is we're constantly calling out. So the planting, building prayer system works as follows. You plant values. You build habits and behaviors. And you dive into Chorosh Baruch Hu constantly, please help me. This is in essence the system. Now the challenge is going to be learning to approach every single educational challenge with just these three pillars. This is all you need to give the kid the maximum head start. Anything else you do besides planting, building, and prayer is a total waste of time. Sometimes it's even destructive. If it doesn't fit into one of these three categories, because chinuch is bringing a person or a tool into the umnus, the profession they're going to perform forever. A person thinks and values, they do behaviors, and they're taken care of by a Kodesh Baruch Hu. So, sof, sof, there's only three things that constitute chinuch. Planting, building, and prayer. Okay, however outrageous it might seem, these three techniques can resolve every single educational challenge we will face from chutzpah to ADD, across the board. What we're going to be doing in future weeks, God willing, is we're going to be discussing how exactly can you use just these three techniques to resolve any educational challenge we're faced with. I'll conclude with this thought.
HaKadosh Baruch Hu, he's the ultimate Mashkiach. He knows exactly how to say over Musr so it'll be heard. Baruch Hashem, we live in a door that is sensitive to the crisis that our community is going through. And people are concerned about Chinuch. And people are beginning to realize that something has gone wrong that needs to be corrected. And therefore, there's tremendous interest in Chinuch. Of course, Baruch knows exactly how to speak to us. He points out that the Sitra Achra is using Chinuch unbelievable with tremendous Hatzlacha. It's interesting that in Gaza, the people are starving to death. And yet, Yas Arafat, who gives them no money, is pouring millions into Chinuch. He's mechanach them, unbelievable. He's spending tons on textbooks. They don't have food. But he's spending tons on textbooks, on training teachers, on making sure the parents know what to tell their kids. There he puts an emphasis. The Sitra Achra is dancing for us. Osama bin Laden, Yamach Shmo. It's the guy for the last 20 years has been just practicing Chinuch. He doesn't have many weapons, right? But he's got some real committed followers. He created an entire army that the United States can't defeat. The biggest army on the planet can't touch the guy. And the reason is, he doesn't fight with guns. He fights with Chinuch. So, HaKadosh Baruch has made this Hatzagah for us. The Sitra Achra is dancing, and it's using Chinuch so beautifully to turn the tables on us. To remind us that it's time that we took Chinuch back. That it's the most powerful method we have for making a revolution, not only in our families, not at the communal level, but at the world level as well. It's a good sign that uh, this little shear that we planned on holding in a small classroom became so full that we had to do it in a shul. And this is not the only shear like this is going on around Eretz Yisrael. And it's not the only shear like this going on all around the world. Klai Yisrael is grabbing the reins back from the Sitra Achra. May it be according to Baruch's will that we take Chinuch seriously and that because of the efforts we're going to make in the next few months and years that we win the war.